You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafiti and Eurosimos. Yo, yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafiti. Come on, I'm Eurosimos. Eurosimos is he? I introduced myself this time, bro. Well, bro, you are stepping up your game. It's impressive to see. The evolution of Erasmus now speaks for himself in the intro. <laughs> Shit. So <laughs> 97, Erasmus finds his voice. That's but it. We have the amazing Chance Garden in the house today, returning as a very early guest on our podcast. Some of you may be familiar with him and his work on his own podcast, Innerverse. Today, we are diving into his latest research around New Age Gnosticism and the simulation theory. Is it real? Is it a hoax? What's going on? We're going to chat to Chance and find out where the cookie crumbles in this regard. Many of you, many of you may know already how we feel and where we stand, but get ready for this conversation. Before we bring Chance on, um, very, very, very limited spots are remaining for round four of Rise Above the Herd, which launches November 29. Um, this is an eight-week transformational journey specifically for truth seekers to really develop an authentic sense of selfhood, of self-esteem, so you can have a clear vision, know what you value, and simply move forward on the path of your most authentic self. Ultimately, that's what we're about, and to us, that's what being here for the truth does really mean. So if that's something that interests you, head to riseaboveTheHerd.co. Thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is episode 97 of Here for the Truth podcast and the incredible Chance Garden, host of the Innerverse podcast, returns. He was one of our earliest guests. We had an awesome conversation back then, and I'm looking forward to this one again today. Chance, how you been, bro? I'm so good, dude. I'm looking forward to this too. Just got off of Music and Sky Festival last month where hung out with Eurasimos in real life and met Sophie and all kinds of other wonderful people and since we last talked, it feels like years, and I don't even think it's been all that long. I mean, I've really been branching into the, uh, rather than just the host guy, more of the researcher bringing my own perspective, making connections that I'm not seeing made elsewhere, and that's a lot of fun. Since then, also, I've uh, been really taken off with the biofield tuning work that I do for clients, and we mm-hmm. might have talked about that some last time, but... Now I've got a huge wealth of experience in wave and tuning forks surrounding people's energy field and uh, uncovering their secrets <laughs> in a helpful, in a helpful way. And so, yeah, life is great. I'm full time doing things that I feel called yes. to do, that I love to do. Now, I actually, you know, after we spoke last, I had a session with Joel, and that was really helpful. I. I don't know if you remember that, Joel. We want to I remember it very pers- well, bro. Personal details of that, but there was a moment that was like, "All right, this is what it is. You gonna what are you gonna do?" <laughs> and, I, I remember uh, it vividly, man. It was take the leap or don't take the leap. But this is what's available to you, and bro, like the evolution that I've witnessed, and especially like now, just having you here in front of me is incredible, man. Seriously. Yeah, well, I appreciate the reflection in that session, and people out there get a session with Joel. It's really good, hard hitting. Uh, helpful, <laughs> empowering. I remember it very well. That was a key, you know, sometimes you just need sort of that externalization of the 
truth you know within yourself and then you either make the choice or you don't but i i made the choice and i t- jumped off the cliff and the unseen forces have come to my aid and i feel like i'm really flying now <laughs> yeah but that's it man what you just said right there too is and we talk about this so much in our group coaching program as well is that when you decide when you make a choice towards the life that you want towards the life that's fully aligned with you know who you know yourself to be and what you want to do those unseen forces support you, you know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call them. And it's like, that's what a lot of times people like to call luck, you know? And it's like, well, when you're honoring yourself um, and you make these decisions from a place of deep integrity, like dope shit happens. That's all I can say. Oh yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, wait, is it hundred percent or 99? How do you guys know it's a hundred percent? It's a hundred percent because the underlying (laughs) fact of nature is that life begets life. Life seeks more life right? All organisms grow this way. All organisms evolve this way. Like I've mentioned many times, plants, they seek the sun, they seek more fertile soil. We are no different. So to me, those unseen forces is simply life seeking more life. When we choose to live in authenticity, when we choose to let things unfold organically, those powers are available to us. If we choose to like, you know, stop that flow and go against it and contradict it. And of course, there's going to be issues that arise. Yeah, dude, I totally agree. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I like to simplify one of the biggest questions out there that a human being can ask himself: like, what's the meaning of life? And I'm thinking, what if life is the meaning of life? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then once you have that one answered, you're like, okay, now we can move on. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. How many we times 100? are we gonna say hundred percent? I, I wonder what the first should we person. Just, should you save this for episode one hundred? I'm just gonna. Yeah, I was gonna maybe. call this episode hundred percent. That'll be the time. Episode hundred percent. I wonder who the first person was that started that. You know, like that just said hundred percent, and then it just kind of started being a thing. Anyways, well, so we, we can't be hundred percent sure about that. Go to the uh, the topic you guys <laughs> would like to go over with me, which I love to talk about. So yeah, man. We're, you guys are here for the truth. And one thing I've noticed in the truth podcasting sphere is that, and I think the breadcrumbs have been laid out like this on purpose and in some way, but maybe it has just a reflection of man's innate desire to create a narrative where he's a victim and and unable to take responsibility for his place. The, it seems like for a lot of conspiracy researchers though, they've, taken the bait, they followed the breadcrumbs and come to a conclusion that the ultimate hidden conspiracy is that the world itself is pure illusion, a prison for the soul. The body is your jail. Everything material is dirty and gross. And that the ultimate truth is that you're supposed to escape from reality and that God is the devil and all this shit. And, you know, what it comes down to to sum it up is lazy research where Mm -hmm. these ideas are based off of texts and scriptures that someone else is interpreting for you. And then that gets passed around like a game of telephone and nobody even goes into the source material themselves. And then if they do, they don't understand the underlying symbolism or the etymology of the language involved. And once you get certain keys to unlock what the symbolism is about and the language is the key, you have it, it really helps to understand that there's actually a universal language that everybody speaks and that our dialects have just sort of changed in different regions. But the way that there's like primal sounds, right? 
there's there's a blueprint to our energy fields in biofield anatomy that is consistent for all people. There are seven colors that make up every pa- possible painting. You know, there's platonic solids. There's only certain shapes that are in that category. The same can be said about language, that there's really one language, there's one story. The sky clock, the zodiac is a really good example of all of those stories collected in one place. We've sort of put them up in the sky. So, you know, we, you guys can hit me with any questions or where we want to start with this, or I can kind of take it away into some opening ideas. But this is what I feel is probably one of my bigger life missions that I'll be talking about for a long time is refuting the simulation theory, demiurge, evil God, reality as a prison type of uh, idea. Because I I think it's perennial, as Tessarion says, it comes back, it comes up again and again in different forms. Simulation theory is the pure materialist version of this philosophy. (laughs) And yeah, and it needs to constantly be refuted, nipped in the bud, people shown a different option. Because the way that it is presented in a lot of conspiracy culture is like, this is the biggest secret. You found it. Congratulations. <laughs> can, yeah. can you kind of just give a br- brief foundation around like, even when you talk about simulation theory, like wh- what is meant by that? Yeah. And, all, and also just to bring everyone on the same page, like the overarching umbrella is, I guess, Gnosticism as well, right? Which kind of keeps um, reinterpreting itself. So also if you can like, yeah, just from a foundational perspective, define what that is, I guess, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So the modern version of this is simulation theory, which you have your transhumanists and computer programmers and basically like (laughs) physicists whose, I put that in air quotes, physicists whose entire, their entire perspective on so-called physics for them is like simulations run in high powered computers, modeling mathematical equations that they have inserted because the current prevailing paradigm says that these mathematical equations are like physical laws of the universe. And they run these equations in the big simulation and they, and they look at big cosmic movements and dark matter and gravity and all kinds of stuff that is absolutely theory and not fact. And they're coming up with like, wow, the universe seems to follow rules and laws like a computer simulation. So it must be a simulation or you have, People that are doing the some level of the great work of spiritual alchemy on themselves, they begin on that path, whether on purpose or accidentally, they begin to notice that synchronicities are increasing. They think of something, it happens. They, you know, become conscious of a concept or an idea and they start seeing it expressed in the reality over and over again. And because people are starting for the most part with a backwards paradigm of what consciousness and expression in the reality, how those interplay with each other. Uh, they are seeing these increasing synchronicities as like evidence that they're in a dream or that everything's fake or that it's an illusion or that something is manipulating them, something's messing with them. So that first primary thing I think to understand would be that humanity, for the most part, is in this idea of Something expresses in the world, in the external world, something happens, and then I become conscious of it. But I think, and this comes from like, this is rhetoric that was explained very well by Neville Goddard, that 
it's the other way around. We become conscious of an of a thing, and then it expresses in the manifest universe. So, getting that in the right order is helpful because it will. It's like now we can. Okay, what am I going to become? I can start to have more of a bit of a control, not control, but like intention over where things are going to go. Like we started out saying, uh, the decision, I think this might have been before the recording, but maybe it wasn't during the recording. I don't know. The decision to do something, it informs like all these things happening that make that decision come true or make that decision mm-hmm. possible, right? So getting that in the right order is helpful. But to go back to this idea of Gnosticism, I don't want to trash. Gnosticism fully, right? <laughs> it's more like New Age Gnosticism, or uh, it's tough because they're people are appropriating a word, mm-hmm. and uh, the ideas about ideas of the ideas of ancient groups of people. <laughs> you know, it's like I said, it's like a game of telephone. Someone's interpretation of someone's interpretation of some ancient group of people that we can't go and talk to, and most people aren't even looking at the original source material. So Gnosticism mm-hmm. means, Gnosis means like knowing, yeah. basically. It's kind of a similar word to science. So there's nothing wrong with the word. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the scriptures that people are mostly referring to when they decide that the reality in this Gnostic label, that the reality is fake, created by an evil God, is coming from... Um, mo- mostly the Nag Hammadi texts, which we can talk in about more and break that down as we go. Like, where are those? Where do they come from? The discuss. I have slides on it. You know, I don't know if you guys are done for screen shares or not, or I can just kind of like go off of my slides a little bit. I mean, um, I'm down. You have yeah, permission. I'm down too. Okay, cool. So. If we're going to do that, uh, if you guys have some response to the things I just laid out, please hit me with it. And then I might pull up some slides. No, I think what I really like that you're saying is this idea of, of language being hijacked and that, you know, you take this word, but w- what what is the etymology of it? Where does it come from? And how there can be interpretations of interpretations of interpretations. So, you know, it's a, a good thing to kind of talk about. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, so it's a misunderstanding of the doctrines that the ancients had and held of this universal religion that expressed itself in different parts of the world. And what I'm currently most interested in finding out where one of the highest levels of interest for me is like, what is the source? Who were the people that were taking this from one place of the world to the, to another, the uh, holy sailors, you might call them. So some books before we get started that I'll refer to, or I'm inspired by recently, first of all, you guys should have this dude on, Dylan Sicosio. Oh, He's, you've been on Unslaved with him a couple of times, right? Yeah, yeah. I took him, take a friend to work day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Dylan's writing this series of books called Spirit World, where it, the first one's really deep on astrotheology. The second one is really deep on the legal system and sorcery of the legal system, which Joel knows about. <laughs> Had some experience now? <laughs> yeah, he's got some good experience with that. Um, book three is kind of an alchemical text that reveals a lot of uh, deeper esoteric doctrines like of Pythagoreans and the Tectractus. And anyway, all of it is exploring language. The fourth book is what I'm holding up right here, A God's Acre for Winds of the Soul. 
the audiobooks of the Spirit World series. And for people just listening, World is spelled W-H-I-R-L-E-D. So I am I produced and narrated the third book in this series, and I'm almost done with the fourth one that I'm holding up right here. These are really great books because uh, some of the other material that I might reference, Dylan has gone and come through old, old stuff. He's What I like about his work is that he doesn't <laughs> reference anything older than or newer than 1850. Mm. He, go, he goes back to the OGs, people who had access to stuff that isn't really in circulation now. And the thing is that nowadays, like I mentioned with the truth, commu- the truth community and Gnosticism and simulation theory and all these ideas, we live in a world where all, all the information about mythology is coming to us through search engines, not through libraries and old books or the ancient philosophers for the most part. And, you know, you go to search a certain term, uh, a certain name of a mythological character and the first 10 results on the page are going to be like video games and TV shows that use that name for one of their characters. Mm. <laughs> so our, our interpretation and understanding of like Zeus and Hercules are like literally the Disney version. Okay, so that is a problem if you're trying to get to the root of what this symbolism was originally for and what it originally referred to. Not to mention the fact that planets are currently named after uh, names that originally meant different things. And the ancients had other names for the luminaries that we call planets. Like Saturn is an old name for the sun. And it's it's demonstrable that the ancients thought this. But in modern day, because people are not aware of the older source material, when they run across things like that, you get ideas like the sort of Velikovskian Saturn was literally the sun and <laughs> in an older age and that the planet that is current is, is Saturn was like closer to the realm and that it was the sun. And then some crazy stuff happened and changed the world. And anyway, all the, all that is like <laughs> misunder, misinterpreting um, astrotheological doctrines of the ancient world, in my opinion. And I think it's demonstrable. So spirit world is a good book series uh, because Dylan takes he, you know, he's done the work, the legwork of going to some of the older ma- source material. He's quoting that. So you know where to go look if you want to read it yourself. The uh, early 1800s version of that type of work would be Anacalypsis by Godfrey Higgins. So this is volume one of the book is huge. And there's more than that. He spent decades, just all day, every day, deep diving into the all the writings of the ancient world that he could get his hands on. They even led him into the Vatican archive at one point. <laughs> wow. You know, because back then it wasn't as big of a threat to the powers that were for a guy like this to go and do his research because mm. books like this were a big book like this was expensive. The commoners wouldn't have access to it. It wouldn't make it onto an internet. There was no such thing. So Higgins is a great source material for the etymology and the uh, understanding the universality of the system and what the system really was. And so those are some great sources. And uh, I recommend if people are interested in this, this stuff to go to the old material at like, like Higgins, Godfrey Higgins, and not base your opinion on what symbolism means on modern people's interpretation. Now, that being said, symbols are multivalent, multidimensional, that 
something can mean more than one thing. And that's where some confusion comes in as well, because you have like Mercury referring to an alchemical uh, philosophy. And then you have Mercury referring to the luminary called Mercury in the sky. And then you have the Mercury that was actually the sun <laughs> in an earlier age. The Mercury who was a version of the solar, uh, the solar Messiah, like a Jesus or a, a you know, that, that type of a guy. Mm -hmm. And that's demonstrable too, through, through kind of just very basic knowledge about the, uh, the mythology from the ancients perspective. So the key thing though, overall is very well summed up in this quote that I'm going to read from Anacalypsis. So this is Godfrey Higgins putting it, just really laying it down. And I'll, I'll elaborate on this. He says, of the sayings of the wise men, there was not one probably more wise than that of the celebrated know thyself. And probably there was not one to which so little regard has been paid. <laughs> mm. It is to the want of attention to this principle that I attribute most of the absurdities with which the wise and learned, perhaps in all ages, may be reproached. Man has forgotten or been ignorant that his faculties are limited. He has failed to mark the line of demarcation beyond which his knowledge could not extend. Instead of applying his mind to objects cognizable by his senses, he has attempted subjects above the reach of the human mind and has lost and bewildered himself in the mazes of metaphysics. <clears throat> That's crucial right there. He has not known or has not attended to what has been so clearly proved by Locke that no idea can be received except through the medium of the senses. He has endeavored to form ideas without attending to this principle, and as might well be expected, he has run into the greatest absurdities, the necessary consequences of such imprudence. So <laughs> that says a lot right there, and to kind of translate, we have the perfect example in modern times with scientism, how mm -hmm. people take authority as truth and, you know, trust us, we can see the invisible world that you're not aware of and we have the tools to sense it. And I'm not saying that, there, we can't, that humanity can't expand that line of demarcation to where our knowledge can extend to. We do. We push that boundary and tools are good for that. But the, as Tessarion likes to say, the the white coat brings you into the world and the black robe takes you out of the world. <laughs> mm. The medical system and the priesthood are two wings of the same cult, whether or not their foot soldiers are aware of that. And they're not for the most part. The average run-of-the-mill priest or rabbi doesn't know any more where what they're doing is coming from than the average doctor at a hospital. So the key here is as Reich talks about in his book, Ether, God, and Devil, that the human mind or the, hu the brain really, when in an imbalanced state, the masculine aspect, the left brain, <clears throat> can overrun us into mechanistic th thinking where we're trying to find every particle and every little piece and categorize it all. And reality isn't quite like that. And then the right brain imbalance takes us into the mysticism that is be beyond the capacity of actually uh, being provably true in the consensus reality. So for me, I'm skeptical of 
material that comes from sources that are channeled, not saying that there can't be good things from it, but like to be aware of, <laughs> are we talking about something that we can all observe in nature? Or are we talking about something that was received by just one individual, mm -hmm. you know, and if a system is received by just one individual and they develop it and it's useful and it proves out in nature, that's one thing. And that's great. Use that. But to take it as like, and run with it as a religious dogma is just as absurd as the cult of branch covidians and wearing a mask to protect you from the invisible yeah. boogeyman. You know, yeah. human design was a, was a channeled, I guess you can say channeled material, you know, which again, I, I kind of align with you in that regards of like, I'm a little bit more suspect, but then something maybe could stand the test of time. A person can apply it into their life and find that it has value. But I, I totally feel what you're saying. Yeah. But I think like there's differences in like sparks of inspiration, which one can receive, you know, even from the Walter Russell perspective. And also when like, oh yeah, there's this one being that I'm constantly, you know, reinterpreting and moving through my mouthpiece as well, you know? So yeah, I, I tend to agree that I'm highly skeptical of channeled material. But in the human design instance, I guess, you know, that's something one can experiment with. And if it becomes true for that individual, then, you know, that's, that develops one's reason around it. Right. And it's not sold as like a religious dogma. Yes. Either. Yeah. It's like, this is a system for you to know yourself through. And if yeah. it's helpful and it works, then that's great. But, you know, when we're talking about like, I spoke to God and he told me that, <laughs> you know, you can't do this and you can do that and all that, you know, you get it. You get yeah, it. Yeah. So the other aspect of this that's really helpful to understand is Baudrillard's concept of hyper-reality, where he says the media represents a world that is more real than the reality we can experience and how people begin to engage with the fantasy without understanding what it really is. So what he means by this, when you hear about Baudrillard's simulacra and simulation, what I think he means by this, how people lose the ability to distinguish between reality and fantasy, is that when you have taken on the lens of a particular worldview, and this comes through media, like people getting the worldview of, you know, cooties when that was all going down. Whenever you take on the lens of a particular worldview and then you go out into we're, nature. We're banned from YouTube, bro. You can say COVID. Oh, yeah. I still like to say cooties because it's so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it's more fun. It's more fun to call it what it fucking is. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, I still will say cooties and I'll call the vaccine the cowpoke because vodka is Latin for cow and you get it. <laughs> well, that's good. Now, now that you've laid the foundation, anyone listening from now on knows. So perfect. <laughs> So whenever you have the whenever you have a worldview that's over some kind of fantasy worldview overlaying your perception and then you go out into nature and nature doesn't align with this fantasy perspective that you now believe in then it makes the it makes the nature the natural world the real world seem unreal okay so this is what's gone on for a long time with humanity whether through the media that we currently have. Medea, by the way, is a mythological character. And she was a witch who cast illusions and caused the uh, solar hero, Jason, to like kill his own children in a Herculean type way. Or she sacrificed her own children. Either way. <laughs> Media is not nice. It's not a good word. <laughs> it's definitely encoding something. So basically, we, we have this happening with the simulation theory idea with the with the new age Gnosticism idea that because their worldview 
uh, is this fantasy mysticism fantasy or mechanism fantasy, depending on which side of the imbalance they're on. And for a lot of people, it's actually some of both. Then when they, if they ever even encounter the natural world, if they ever leave the house, something about it feels not right. Something about it feels fake to them in some way. And they avoid contact with it at all costs, actually. And so that's where a large degree of humanity is at. And that's why it's so easy to get people to for people to choose to believe in a fallen world, a a prison body and uh, an evil demiurge creator. Yeah. And you know what like really piques my interest is what's taking place within the psyche of the individual that wants to seek fantasy as opposed to reality, right? Like why have they come into such a dissonant relationship with themselves and nature where they seek reality through fantasy? Because, you know, obviously for them, even the origin of the universe story, Big Bang, right? Nature is random. Nature is unpredictable. Nature is unknown. This is conditioned and festering in the base of one psyche. So from the beginning, they're at odds with themselves. They're at odds with nature. There's, you know, so it's like, it's actually playing on one's own self-loathing as well, I think. Yeah. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you see the world as fake, then there there's like inherent self-loathing in that mm-hmm. there has to be because yeah. you are the world we are living nature so yeah. mm-hmm. and it when you really get down to what the new age gnostic is seeking it is just straight derived from the old old buddhism and the a lot of versions of hinduism where the doctrine is that if you have any if you have if there's anything to perceive or a perceiver at all. Like if you have any sense of I am left, even a shred of selfhood or ego, then you are still in the illusion. This is mm-hmm. the doctrine that is taught by the Eastern cults. Yep. And so <laughs> this is like the ultimate attempt to return to the womb yep. and uh, basically oblivion, really. And that's why it leads so so quickly and so easily to like a metaverse idea because that's an attempt to return to a womb state. But the irony is that no matter how self-destructive one is, no matter how much one seeks oblivion and non-existence, the only thing that exists is existence. So (laughs) no matter what you do, where you go, or how much damage you do to your own psyche, you are still going to be there. You're always left left with yourself. And who is left with yourself? Who, who tried to make this very loud and clear? Who said A is A? Who said reality is a fact? Who said existence is existence, right? Ayn Rand, man. This, she's been the antidote to a lot of this for a long time. This is the most pro-life philosophy. Um, you know, and all, all she tried to do was tell people, guys, hey, look at reality. Deal with reality. Let that be your guide. And she was hated, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I haven't dove, dove much into her work, but I have heard Michael talk about her. And I Bro. mean... Yeah, that sounds, that all sounds good to me. I think you would totally be into, you know, what she has to say. And like Joel said, I think a lot of the ant- the antidote for a lot that has been taught, you know, the last several decades, you know, um, is, is, is in her philosophy. I'm not going to say like she is the one and has all the answers, but let's just say she's, she was a smart cookie. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately what it is, is it's nature worship. It's man worship, right? And many people are triggered by that statement. But why wouldn't you worship man? Why wouldn't you worship human potential? Because ultimately, that is just recognizing the vast 
immensity of nature and the gift that it is, right? Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be worship, you know? That word is so charged. Yeah. It can just be like recognition of the potential is in of itself powerful. Everything in terms of healing on the in energy work that I do with people is strictly about like, can we recognize where the blockage is? And that allows things to sort themselves out. Yeah. It's really about hiding, hiding things from ourselves that causes the most problem. And so... So one of the things though, like reflective of that is how we can't even see the stars in most of our urban centers anymore. Mm -hmm. And if we understood this concept of constellation writing that the ancients did, where they would put mythological characters into constellations or man, there's, this is where it gets really uh, fascinating and deep for me. Like there's a word the Sumerians and Akkadians used for this idea of constellation writing called Lumashi. So this is the, a word referring to the astro logos or scripture in the stars and the practice of the ancient priest astronomers because one priest meant astronomer and astronomer meant priest in the ancient world. They're, it was the same thing. So they would derive the history of the world in terms of what they taught from the interplay, the puns, homonyms, synonyms, double entendre, all that type of stuff between the names of the constellations and the names of the stars and what the constellations represented in their proximity with each other and multiple languages that they had familiarity with. So the ancient astronomer priests would know, say, for example, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, you know, and probably other languages too. So this interplay of hidden words and hidden meanings from reading between the lines was actually considered to be the secrets of the gods and that only the initiated, the Illuminati, which is a, a <laughs> not even an evil word in and of itself. Uh, it was a rank in the mystery schools of the uh, pre-Christian Christian church. The, only the ones who were initiated to the meaning of the symbolism would be able to comprehend these secrets. And so, um, because the, because the ancients, this is my personal opinion. This is what I think has happened over a long period of time, that something would occur that was monumentally important, historically speaking, say a new king would rise or an empire would rise and take over a, a region, a neighboring region. They would conquer the astronomers or the priests of that region. One of the first things they would do is, is take over the priests and like even the name Homer, right? Where we get the Iliad and all these mm -hmm. uh, epic poems. Homer means hostage. <laughs> wow. So we have these hostage priests that are then instructed to like, all right, uh, put, put the history of my kingdom up there in the stars or, or something along those lines, or put me, the king, up there in the constellation, put, you know, put my name on it. <laughs> I took, uh, I'm, I'm important. I'm a chosen one. And so because this would be a practice that occurred uh, repeatedly, the, uh, and they knew that this has been happening for a long time. My opinion is that they would see the history of the world in the constellations and decide that, well, if it's up there, it must have got up there for a reason because it really happened. Even if it's so far back that we have no actual records of it. This is the record. The constellation writing is the history. So over time, obviously, that's not actually a good system for keeping real literal history. <laughs> it 
it starts to get like more and more confused, muddled and complexified over time. So like a good example of this would be we have all the flood myths of various cultures. You have the Epic of Gilgamesh, where he, they reference Utnapishtim, who was a flood hero who survived on a big boat that he built. And uh, you have Noah, of course. Noah's Ark is the most famous one. If you go back even further into the Sumerian, uh, the oldest Sumerian lore, you have the myth of, I think it's one of the very oldest cuneiform tablets that there is, the Atrakasis. <laughs> and it just takes a little bit of uh, play, <laughs> hidden word, wordplay, to realize that this idea of uh, Atrakasis or Atrahasis, depending on who you ask and how they interpret it, that this guy who was the Noah character through which all humanity was bottlenecked after the world was ended in a flood, supposedly, and then brought back, that he's, the, he's like Adam now. And he's the only guy left. Everything came from him. So the source of humanity starts with this guy, Atrakasis. Well, Kasis is practically the same word as chaos, which is the Greek word that we have as chaos. So the origin of the world is chaos. And that's a, a fairly well-known mythology from like the poetry of Ovid and Metamorphosis, the, which is exactly what I'm describing. It's a, an epic of the history of the world from the creation up to his time. And the beginning of it starts with the idea of chaos. <laughs> so uh, I don't know where you guys might want to ask from here, but I've got plenty of more ammunition. I guess I should actually, before I kick it over to you, describe where this is showing up in the stars, okay? So the uh, the more likely scenario is that there's not a world flood, even though almost everybody believes in that. But if we just base it off of our senses, it's probable that that is not what happened, you know? So you have in the Zodiac, the winter half of the Zodiac starting at a certain point a bunch of the constellations are water-related constellations. So these mm -hmm. are the waters of the Zodiac. And there's uh, standing right before the, the waters of the Zodiac, there's the legendary hero figure of the Zodiac, which we call Orion. He's standing right there. He's actually about to walk on water as the constellations right at his feet represent rivers. And uh, there's the Argo Navis constellation. The Argo Navis is big boat in the sky. Okay. Argo, Ark, same, basically the uh -huh. same word. Uh, and with the story of the flood, there's like the part where he, uh, where Noah sends the birds out, right. Mm -hmm. To see if the waters have receded enough. I, he sends three different kinds of birds out. There's like a, a raven and the last one is a dove, I think. And the dove doesn't come back and the boat lands on a mountain at the end. Well, all this stuff is up there in the sky. What we call the constellation Gemini was also portrayed as two mountains, twin mountains. And that's like right across from the sky clock from the boat. Uh, in, inside of the boat constellation, there's a star that is named after a dove. I'm doing all this by memory, but like, you know, if you really get into the nitty gritty and come through the details of it and spend the time doing the work, the, mount, the evidence is just of what I'm describing is like endless and you could just spend hours and hours and hours going over the minutia of the details. 
Uh, there's a crow and a, or a raven constellation right by the ark. All basically like all of the all of the characters, components, settings, uh, animals involved, like everything about the the miracle story and all the miracle stories that I've ever looked into are right there in the sky clock, <laughs> like all together in a tableau. So when we call this Lumashi constellation writing, we're talking about the tableau in the sky where at a certain time of year you look up and you see only see a portion of the night of the sky at once, right? You don't see the whole, every star in the, in the creation all at the same time. At a certain time of year, you only see this part of it, right? If you get a planisphere like this right here, you can kind of simulate that. And as you turn it, you see what part of the sky is available at any mm -hmm. one time. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I highly recommend people interested get in this type of thing, get a planisphere and just start playing with that and see, you know, the mythology literally <laughs> transpiring before your eyes as you rotate it, like the story going on. So you have all the components of the flood hero myth right there in the sky clock. And to every, every single miracle story that is a, like a supernatural mystical beyond the ability of what we've ever witnessed with our own eyes to ever happen type of story. Well, there it is. So uh, the ancients, I think, were calling this ancient history because of the fact that in their time, stuff was getting added up there as it happened, potentially. You know, a ruler or a king would have himself put up there. So they, I think, would assume that whatever they did see up there must have been put up there by somebody whenever it happened and then carried on forward. It's like the... Uh, they say that there's an oral tradition and things weren't written down. That's not exactly true. It was up there. That was their that was their book. Well, thanks, man, for for, for sharing all that. So, hmm, I guess my question is: so, how do people, I guess, begin to discover true history? Because what we're saying here is that you know. People are building belief systems based upon mythology that's been distorted. So how does one begin to find the root and find the truth? Yeah, that's what my friend Dylan is really working on with his newer books. He just published one that I've only read the first chapter so far, but it's great. It's called The Holy Sailors. And cool. so I, I won't say that he's like an authority or the expert. I don't believe in such ideas, but he has his particular strategy for figuring things out and what is or isn't knowable is to just like base the assumptions we make on real world physical artifacts that are still around, like inscriptions yeah. on walls and, and old architecture and specifically to the remnants of the in the language that connect things can't really be obscured or denied. So get, that's another part of it. So I, I would say overall, we have to maybe come to terms and accept that history as it's been presented to us as an idea, as mm -hmm. a study, it just isn't real. <laughs> that they're kind of like get back into a present moment awareness of the past is a story and uh, the future is a potential and all that there is is actually right now. And I think part of the 
reason why we've been culturally over so long made to believe in history and ancient history and the way it's presented is largely because of uh, systems of rulership that needed to have some sort of authority derived from some kind of lineage and historicity that, you know, at the end of the day, if we want to abrogate these middleman systems that are vampirically between us and every type of version of source that they call resources on the realm, then uh, it starts with abrogating the authority that they derive from faked history. So, you know, like we can, we can look at writings from like Herodotus and say that that's valid history, or we can study astrotheology and realize that he's telling Herodotus is telling the same story of the uh, solar hero and the mythology that becomes a, a character like Jesus over and over again. <laughs> and it's like, at a certain point, we maybe just have to uh, let that go and realize that we're not going to know things that are beyond the scope of our knowing and that ancient history is one of those things. But <clears throat> if we can demonstrate that people have kept certain traditions, rituals, ceremonies, and uh, artifacts within their language that that point to a similar route, like the fact that there are, <laughs> that when the uh, conquistadors came to Mexico, they found that the uh, peoples that were living there had base, were basically speaking Hebrew. <laughs> that was their, they didn't have a written language, but they were, that their language was basically no different than Hebrew. Uh, that tells you something that maybe there was a world or world spanning seafaring civilization that was going all around the world. And that Hebrew itself is fascinating in the sense that it, the original 16 letters of that alphabet are the same as the original 16 letters of the Celtic alphabet. And not like in a, not in a written sense, they had a different, they had different writing and glyphs, but phonetically, like the order of the mouth sounds that we call letters and the fact that there are 16 is also mirrored in the original 16 letters of the Greek alphabet supposedly brought to Greece by Cadmus. So like that question is a tough one. Maybe Hmm. later down (laughs) the research line, I'll have a different answer, but mostly I'm just like, I think we might have to let go of the idea of truly knowing because things that are coming to us in the form of writing and texts most of that is funneled through some kind of monastery at some point in history and been books were gathered and burned and then rewritten by the prevailing power. And even like, you know, looking at the, uh, some of the more ancient cultures of the world, like India, <clears throat> they have, they have scriptures and texts going back theoretically thousands and thousands of years, but in their climate, they were rewriting their scrolls and scriptures every 10 years because the climate there caused the, material that it was kept on to degrade. So to just sort of trust and believe that these record keepers weren't inserting things that fit their own agenda and the regime that they were assisting as they rewrote the histories every 10 years for hundreds Mm -hmm. of hundreds of years, it's not likely that we've got the truth about history. And, you know, when you think about it on just a philosophical level, I, I think that it's okay to accept that we can't know things that are certain distance away in the time stream, you know, just maybe we should just accept that and let that go a little bit (laughs) because it's, uh, it's not helping us to fight over, you know, who's 
the special boy and whose culture is the the right one. And I know one thing I get a lot of pushback with when I'm talking about syncretism and demonstrating how like Odin is Buddha, is Jesus, is Mercury, and it's all the same uh, mythos kind of repeated in different parts of the world is that like, you know, heathens or Christians or whatever label they give themselves are like, well, aren't you kind of diminishing the, my culture, like to say that my culture is all came from the, the same place as their culture, like, but we're special, we're different. And yes, I'm not trying to be like communist and make everything one world system on, on y'all, but like, it's true that you'll have regional differences. It's true that your mythologies will have morals and uh, things about them that apply to a certain group of people in a certain place. And that's all good. And what's important is to just show that like, um, in terms of a religious system, in terms of a, a system of spirituality, the benefit and the use of it is in how it can help us understand the truth of nature and what nature does. And that's actually a singular truth. You know, there's, <laughs> there is actually just one nature. There's one alchemical process. There's, you know, one way that babies are made. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, there is some universality to, some, to, to religion when you get down to what's actually knowable in the realm and how religion can help us hold on to and retain that type of wisdom. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, because a lot of people, you know, when you ask them what God is, they'll just say nature, you know, nature is the closest thing um, in in that regards for them. Um, So I'm curious your thoughts on that. Um, Even that term God, you know, we've, we've asked different guests on this show, what do they think about that term and what does it mean to them? So I'm curious your thoughts. Sure. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems evident that, you know, maybe this is going beyond the capacity of our senses, but it seems evident that this is a created realm. Now, like how that creation comes about and manifests, that's a really interesting question to speculate on. But uh, I, I see the realm as mental. I see reality as mental, like that hermetic axiom of mentalism. And like so, all, all is all is mind. Kind of all thing. is mind. Yeah. So to me, I think that the, the physical reality is manifest out of this divine imagination, um, this field of potentiation or the pleroma that is some, for whatever reason, ordering itself into the experience that we all share currently. But yeah, like God is nature. That's not a bad way to consider God. Uh, that's a you know that's a big question that people maybe yeah. have to answer for themselves. But for sure. uh, the idea of a a creation that it's a creation seems evident because that's how everything that we ever see that wasn't here and now is here ever got there. As somebody created it, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I guess the the question is like. Is it created or is it just creation? Is it just the isness? Has it always just been, you know, which is again a hard thing to, I guess, kind of um, decipher and determine. But yeah, for me, I kind of see it as just like a perpetual, ongoing creation and isness. Like, I don't know. That's my perspective. Yeah. Like beyond the idea of beginnings and endings. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that was more of the ancient doctrine as well. When you look at Genesis 1 1, for example, we have the KJV version. Most, not maybe not most, but a lot of people could quote that, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the actual, (laughs) the actual Hebrew, if you look at the actual Hebrew words for that verse and translate it in a more honest way, Instead of in the beginning, the Hebrew is bar rashit, which means by wisdom or born of wisdom. So in the beginning is actually by wisdom. (laughs) And then the next word is Elohim, which they current, like most people currently know as the word Elohim, but it's actually Elohim. So bar rashit Elohim, by wisdom, the gods created the world from matter previously existing. <laughs> That's what the actual honest translation of Genesis 1-1 would be, from matter previously existing. So the, uh, I think that the eternality of matter is a more sound doctrine because mm-hmm. whenever we look at our, the evidence of our senses, we can see that nothing is ever actually created out ex nihilo, right? And when things are destroyed, they actually just change form or regenerate in some way. So everything that is, is. The isness is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's a more sound doctrine. I think that whole like in the beginning idea actually is, a, is causes like kind of a schisming problematic cut in the timeline of someone's own sense of eternality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what you said before too, because I wanted to ask you like, what are your thoughts on with this whole idea of interpretations of interpretations, ideas about ideas, like how does that play out in the Bible? So I liked how you started, um, or you at least spoke about that. Because I'm so curious, you know, there's different translations and even people who talk about the Lord's Prayer, like there's different translations on that and what that means and uh, have it has such different relevance to the person. Yeah, and when you look at the book of Genesis, it looks more like it's multiple traditions cobbled together into one book. I mean. Genesis chapter one is a creation story. And then chapter two is a creation story. (laughs) Mm. The first creation story is that God creates Adam and Eve together. And then the second creation story is God is uh, God creating Eve out of Adam's rib. Right. Mm. And then some like to go back to the Nag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi scriptures are what a lot of the modern new age Gnosticism is based off of. Mm hmm. And it's problematic because it came out of like, I can't remember the exact year. I might have it written what, You're saying when it was discovered? When yeah. it was supposedly discovered, right? When, the, when it was put out into the public. And it was in the 40s? I don't know. It was in the 40s. I, I won't say the exact year. I thought but it, was it, was it, it was like the same year the CIA was created. So <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> A lot going on then. But uh, what's fascinating I, yeah. is like the most popular translation of this text was prepared by UNESCO, <laughs> which really? is the United, yeah, United Nations. Wow. Yeah, that seems problematic to me. Anyway, um, Nag Hammadi. So in 1945, we um, can look at that word, Nag Hammadi, and just break down some things out of the language as a demonstration for what, like having some of the keys of language can help you do to decipher things. So Nag, Nagas, in Hindu is serpents and Nahash in Hebrew is serpents. So right there, you can see a link between uh, the old Vedic and 
the uh, or San- Sanskrit or Sanskrit, as the Indians call it. We're given Sanskrit as the word, but they say Sanskrit because <laughs> it's the writing of the sun, Sanskrit. So Nagas and Nahash, basically the same word, you know, it's no different. So Nag, serpents or watchers, and then Hamadi. So Ham or Ham or Ham is the word for black or darkness. So that's the same root as where we get Kemet, alchemy. Uh, Ethiopia was a, is a word that is from the Greek Ethiops, which means uh, of a burnt complexion or blackened. Mm. So, you know, that's also interesting because we have a country called Ethiopia now that's in Africa. But when you go back in time, you find that there's like multiple Ethiopias and they're just talking about a place where dark-skinned people live. Mm-hmm. And India is Ethiopia in, I think, provably so. If you, you know, if people had followed the same research trail I have, <laughs> they would probably think that. So Nag, ha, uh, Ham, which is black or darkness. And then Mad. Mad is the same root as Madre. Mother or mm-hmm. uh, dame, dame, you know, that's mother. But also notice how Adam has dam in it, right? You put Adam backwards, it's mada. So, uh, <laughs> and Adam, there's all kinds of interesting links between Adam and the solar hero, especially in the form of Saturn or Kronos, who had names like Adamu, uh, Adamus, Adonis. The, even the Hebrews called their call God uh, Adonai. They're referring to Adam, the idea of Adam, the Adam Kadmon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this is the creator, Demiurge character. And we should talk about the Trinity uh, in, a, in a little bit because this is one of the main doctrines that's the universal thing. So anyway, you have in uh, Adam, you have the D and the K are letters that can interchange between languages a lot. And this is part of the trick is like knowing what letters interchange between languages will help you figure out words that are actually kind of referring to the same thing. Like one that a lot of people would be familiar with is L to R switch between languages happens all the time. Um, W switches with M in uh, he, when you go from Sanskrit to Latin. There's a lot of things like that that if you get some familiarity with can help you kind of play around with the letters. and then. The fact that uh, different, I mean, we see this in modern times all the time, that people speaking the same language will put a different emphasis or even a whole different sound on certain vowels. Like, you know, I once I, it really struck me when I heard a New Zealander one time say Omega and they said Omega. And I was like, oh, okay. So we have the same exact spelling and completely different vowels in terms of the sound. So vowels can kind of just be interchanged willy-nilly when you get down to it. Uh, that's, what, that's how I feel in my conversations with Joel on a regular basis. You know, <laughs> we're, we're speaking English, but we both just sound differently. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so like to go back to Nag Hammadi to just like what that word breaks, what that phrase breaks down to then would be the, the uh, serpent, the black serpent mothers, basically, or makers. Because D and, if D and K interchange as they can, then Madi is not a lot, is really no different than make, you know, M-A-D-I, M-A-K-E, we have a very similar word. So we're talking about makers. And why would the mother being the maker, that gets us into the Trinity idea, but one of the key crucial things in the uh, Eastern doctrines that became the, the Occidental Western doctrines is the idea of 
wisdom being the origin of everything. Wisdom. So that's, it. that's evident actually in Genesis 1.1 in the Hebrew because it says barashit, which means by wisdom, not in the beginning. And we're probably all pretty familiar if we have any knowledge of mythology of goddesses of wisdom mm-hmm. in the ancient world. It's kind of a thing, right? <laughs> my, my wife is named after the Greek word Sophia. Exactly. That's actually the slide that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> Sophia means wisdom. But what else does Sophia have encoded in it? Well, remember, Nag Hamadi, Nag Nachash, serpent. Well, Ophis is the word for serpent in Greek. Yeah, Sophie, I mean, you're, Sophie, you're a serpent. Yeah, and serpents are, <laughs> be ye as wise as serpents, as Jesus says in the Bible, right? Uh, so Soph, the Greek word Soph, which is sigma, uh, omicron, phi, Soph, that means wisdom. And then, yeah, the I-A of Sophia is the suff- suffix referring to uh, both, both the state of something, or it also can refer to uh, a place, like a country, or also diseases get this suffix in the Greek and flowers, which is interesting because the, uh, the Gnostic mythos of the Nag Hammadi library, if you go to the creation story, the creation stories you can find there, uh, Sophia is the maker goddess that makes the world actually. And her, they call her uh, Pistis Sophia. And mm. that it, Pistis is like belief. You know, f- flowers have a pistol. Oh, got it. You know? So there's like a flowering idea to that as well. And uh, don't we see in the Eastern traditions, the deities emerging out of lotus flowers all the time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> lotus, what, uh, what happens when you switch the L to the R with lotus? You get rotas. 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 What is on the high priestesses? Hetero. <laughs> uh, Tarot, what does the tarot have? Rotas is a big deal with tarot. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> it all connects when you just have these little bit, little keys to language and can kind of internalize them and look at things with new eyes. But um, yeah. real, real quick, I just wanted to say that I, the reason I said that when you said pistis, like the, the word belief in Greek and modern Greek is pisti. So I don't know if that at all <laughs> relates to anything. <laughs> No, totally. Yeah, that's. Uh, I haven't really thought about that, but it's where you get the word, like the word epistemology. Epistemology. Yeah. Yeah. So Look what you've unlocked, Erasmus. <laughs> I know. How brilliant your mind is. <laughs> the Greeks. Dude, you know, Greek. you know, the Greek word "pisti" means belief. <laughs> I, f- you know what? I fucking love Greek as a language. Uh, in my research journey, I taught myself the Greek alphabet so that I could read words in Greek. And man, it's a cool alphabet. (laughs) You know, it's way more fun to learn than like the Hebrew letters, which look really retarded and don't make any sense. Hey, Chance, (laughs) you might be accused of anti-Semitism here in a second, bro. Relax. Oh, no. Don't let the tiny hats come after me. That's it, dude. You're getting thrown (laughs) into the same category. Shit, man. I've reported you, bro. Oh, yeah. I think it's... uh, Well, it just isn't... It isn't a viable language that anybody would ever actually like use for life. It's, <laughs> I think, more of a, I think it's more of like a priest, priestly language for ciphering and encoding things. It's fine. It is what it is. But like it's, Greek is cooler. It, that's what I think. <laughs> well, you're, listen, you're, wel- you're welcome back on the show anytime again after that statement. Just letting you know. <laughs> 
I play favorites. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like to go back uh, to talk more about the Gnostic ideology of the New Age Gnostics, they yeah, have this idea perfect. of the Demiurge, right? Mm-hmm. So the Demiurge, they also call him Rex Mundi. Um, and then they, people claim that Jehovah is the Demiurge, the Old Testament, yep. Bibles. God is actually the Demiurge. He's the evil God, you know. And all this, all this is so mind-blowing to me. And I, I love how uh, Michael, to bring up to Sarion again, in one of his premium presentations, uh, I had the great pleasure last year of helping him produce some of his premium presentations and doing the, uh, the videos and the editing for that. And awesome. so it was great because I wanted to watch them anyway. It was a learning experience. And he did a couple on Gnosticism, kind of the origins of the system and refuting some things about the modern beliefs that come with that label. And one of the most obvious things ever is like, so you have this idea of the, uh, the eternal, true, real father, God, what have you. And then that it had emanations and that from these emanations, one of them is wisdom, who is Sophia or Pistis Sophia, which means, yeah, it means faith, <laughs> as you said, uh, Pistis does. And then she decided that she was going to give birth without a father and try to create without the help of the uh, Supreme God. This is in the ideology that is currently spread around. And that this was an abortion and that that being the Aldebaoth uh, or the Demiurge or Rex Mundi is the one who created the world that we inhabit. And that he was like somehow uh, evil and bad <laughs> because and, she created him without the, without the big daddy. And where does this come from again? Like this idea? So, well, where this idea comes from goes further back but the the modern interpretations of this is from the Nag Hammadi or on the origin of the world is like probably the main text that people are citing gotcha, like, gotcha, gotcha. this okay. is all real and true in evidence when that shit could have even been put out as a, like a, a red herring and fake or or you know we didn't go translate it ourselves either from the Coptic but anyway and we'll get to what, what I think is the misinterpretation about all this that causes the belief that the uh, the creator God is the bad guy. I'll get mm-hmm. to that. But to just like get into the word demiurge, it's from the Greek demiurgos, which means a craftsman and uh, like a hired worker or craftsman. And then Rex Mundi. Rex is king. Mundi is translated as world. But uh, I think, and I, I agree with Higgins on this, that Mundi is a corruption of Amanda. And Manda means the same thing as Gnosis. And so you have like one of the original sects of uh, so-called Gnostics were the Mandeans, right? And anyway, um, and Jehovah, Jehovah is a, a transliteration of the Hebrew yad heh vav And we can, and I'll, I'll get to more about that. But anyway, um, Manda is Aramaic, meaning Gnosis is not in knowledge. MD M-N-D-O, which is like Mim, Nun, Dalet, uh, Aleph, and Chaldean, which is sharing alphabet with the Hebrew. That means science. So Manda, Gnosis, science. Interesting how the Mm. cult of scientism is the cult of Gnosticism. It's the same cult. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So... um, 
the other interesting thing too, like in back to that R to L interchange, Rex, which is King, translates or uh, can swap to become Lex, which is Word, Logos, mm. Rex Mundi, Lex, Manda, <laughs> King of the World, or uh, the Word of Wisdom, or the Logos of 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 Knowing. Interesting. Uh, so. Other versions of the god or savior, the chief deity, the pater, the pater, the pattern, like Zeus, Deus, uh, were called Redemptor Mundi. So Rex Mundi, Redemptor Mundi, there's all these ideas. Um, yeah, so where do I want to go from here? There's like, so this Demiurge character is replete throughout different versions of uh, mythology and history. Again, it's, it's a public servant is the original meaning of the Greek word. <laughs> uh, but in the Eastern philosophies, it's considered to be an aeon employed in the creation of the world. And I hope that I remember to get back to this word aeon because it's super important. But some versions of this in different, ver in different um, mythologies would be Vulcan, who's a blacksmith, uh, Jesus, who's a carpenter, Ptah of the Egyptians, who's a potter, uh, Lou of the Irish, who's skilled in many arts, and Thoth, who brought about writing to the Egyptians. These are, um, Thoth, man, that's definitely Buddha. Thoth, Thoth Tat, Teos. Buddha's got so many names that if I spent the uh, 10 minutes reading all the names of Buddha in the history of the world, you'd be like, oh shit, everything's Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it is. I think that's the oldest version of this that you can get down to. So um, the Aeons are also called the Archons in this philosophy. Mm -hmm. Archon is a Greek word referring to a prince, a ruler. They, in ancient Greece, there were chief magistrates. And interesting that the word uh, magistrate is defined in the older dictionaries. I like to go to Webster's 1828 dictionary. Really good way to get to what words actually meant before modern confusions. But... The archons um, who are magistrates, magistrate meant God with a lowercase g. So it also means judge. So like, you know, in the legal sorcery of, of it all, the, uh, the magistrate who is the judge, who is the prince or the ruler, used to pray to the God who instead of plea to the judge, but it's the same thing. Whenever you make a plea to the judge, you're praying to the God, lowercase g. Mm. Uh, the Greeks had nine archons, nine chief magistrates. Sounds a lot like our nine judge Supreme Court, right? Oh, yeah. So hey, bro, just, just curious, is the word woman in that dictionary that you're referencing on? The uh, Webster's 1828? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a great question. Can I just look it up real quick? I'm being, I'm being sarcastic. Man, but sure. <laughs> yeah. I know no, you're being man, sarcastic, like, but he's also, I think, curious, you know, unless it says like an adult female. The female of the human race grown to adult years. Sounds well, good. Okay. Similar. Well, I, I just laughed because the other day I actually looked up matriarchy in the mm. dictionary and it doesn't exist. There is no word for matriarchy in mm. 1828. <laughs> Interesting. I just like looked, I just looked up to like have a copy of the Webster's 1828 dictionary on hand as like a hard copy. Right. Yeah, that would probably be expensive, but the uh there's just, a just thirty dollars, thirty nine dollars. Really? 
Yeah, I'm on Amazon. for that for Christmas, man. On Amazon. I would love a cop, a physical copy. All right. So, yeah. so, All right, so here, I'm curious. I'm curious because we've spoken a lot about what I guess Gnosticism is, how it presents itself, um, simulation theories, etc. But how does an individual in today's day who goes down these rabbit holes and adopts this philosophy, right? What, is, what, what effects would it have on them in terms of their actions, in terms of their output, in terms of their relationship with themselves, with their bodies and with life? Why is this so sinister? That's a really good question. Uh, basically, though, the, the simplest answer is that if you believe that the world is a f- false prison um, punishment louche farm, that's a word they use for it. They say that, you know, we're yep. all just here to be louched by higher beings. Then you, you've given yourself the ultimate victim posture. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. And as soon as you take on that, that position, uh, you're that much more willing to play victim to all kinds of things. And also, uh, I think that if your belief is that you need to escape the world and so like, how do you do that? Go into a cave and do aesthetic practices until, you know, it, it actually becomes selfish in an unhelpful way, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. You know, real quickly, you, real quickly, because on, on that subject, I'm curious because a lot of people yearn to escape from this world, whether it's aesthetic practices, going in a cave and meditating or taking a certain substance. And I'm curious where that, how that plays into that as well, you know, since we've seen this growth of the trend of people thinking plant medicine is the panacea for all their life's issues. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's complicated, you know, because I have had relationship with plant medicines that really helped me in the way I used the intention I used it for, but to, um, you know, maybe get to the more ancient usage of these plant medicines. I think that in the initiation ceremonies, you would actually use the plant medicines to give the initiate the impression that supernatural stuff was actually happening. You know, Mm. it makes the mind very pliable and impressionable. And I think that that is uh, probably why it's being pharmaceuticalized Mm. because it maybe is a a logical next step to program more programmable humans possibly. But uh, that's a tough question because it's a tool yeah. And I don't think any tool is inherently good or bad. It's not the ultimate panacea, but in the right context and usage can be a liberating experience. You know, like that's my rela- my relationship with uh, like psilocybin was one of really helpful medicine for integrating some shadow and, and experiencing uh, the energies that are, that I had been closed off to being able to perceive. But then that wasn't the end of the road. It was like opening some windows in my consciousness so that I could tell that there was like an energetic field that I was a part of that was beyond what I was currently able to sense. And then doing the work with like Qigong was the main thing to get more sensitive on the natural and to be able to do that without any kind of help and increase my level of consciousness or sensitivity to energy from there. Yeah. So complicated no, pre- question. Yeah, no, no, I, I pre- yeah, it is I for sure, man. And I, I appreciate your answer. And I, I think there's definitely positive experiences that can that can occur from from experience with with these substances. Uh, I brought it up only because I'd shared something earlier on in Instagram, uh, a previous guest of ours who I, I consider an expert on the nervous system. 
uh, had interviewed someone who who'd said literally the ayahuasca wrecked his nervous system and there were tons and tons of comments that were that were uh, commenting on that page that um were in concurrence you know obviously there's some people that said they had good experiences but there were a lot also that were saying like it rocked them and i think in this world where something gets super super trendy and every other person has their own personal shaman i mean i live in los angeles so there's tons of those quote unquote spiritual types or new age types which if you want to uh chat uh talk about in a bit um you know it's just something that's overused and you have practitioners who you know go spend a few days in the in the amazon or something and then they come back and they just identify as being personal shamans and don't have the understanding of human biology or even some more esoteric elements of this work and you know people go into it um super trusting and you know it may not always be the the best experience so you know i'm always suspect when people are just like promoting something as the greatest thing and you know we have to look at both sides to it so i appreciated your answer on yeah, that if it's on if it's on the joe rogan experience <laughs> be skeptical <laughs> here you go uh yeah i heard his uh, i heard from his tattoo artist came out and revealed that joe had never even done dmt that he's promoting stuff to you know young people that he's himself doesn't do or never actually did and lies about it. Yeah, which Bro, I don't. Joe had a whole documentary on DMT. You reckon he's, he's never even done it? That's crazy. According to his tattoo artist, he's never wow. done it. Wow. It's interesting. Like even like I could speak for myself personally. You know, like in 2009, I spent I spent 10 days living in a treehouse in the jungle, and I had gone on a, a trip around the world backpacking. And I ended up at this 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 healing center, this shamanic healing center, and I and I experienced um, six ceremonies over nine days, and you know, there were some profound experiences. But you know, for me personally, and again, when you think about healing, when you think about becoming more whole, it's a very individual experience. And the thing that had the biggest impact on me and getting more connected to myself and being rooted and grounded was number one, getting completely sober, not because I had an issue, because I made the choice to really want to engage in reality. And the somatic and the deep body work that I did, you know, you talk about Qigong, there's other things as well. And that for me was like the biggest game changer. Now, maybe for other people, you know, going into a cave or going into a setting with psilocybin or plant medicine could be really beneficial. But I, I just think it's really important that, um, you know, both sides are honored, you know, that people need to understand these are powerful, powerful substances and they need to have some reverence and respect and not just go in it blindly. Um, and know themselves. Self-knowledge comes into play here. It's like, well, do you know yourself? You know, are what's the state of your nervous system? You know, the, these things can have an impact that people need to become aware of. Anyways, those are my final thoughts on that. Yeah. No, and that's like, good oh, to say. I um, want to point out what you made me realize in this conversation about, you know, is the world of, I'm coming at it from like the absolutely not, is the world of energy harvesting prison loose factory. But I'm saying that the world isn't inherently that. It's not designed for that. That's not what it is on the highest, like the highest truth of the world. But in the world, there are energy harvesting, loosing operations, uh, bad, you know, witchcrafty, shaman, like false shamans that will actually set up energetic cords and tethers to people that they, that came to them in a vulnerable state and like actually harvest energy and do weird shit. I've seen some shit when I was on psychedelics in you know, um, in places. So like, I, I know that there's maybe something to that, but now in this realm of, of energy and, and the sort of beyond the physical, we're now talking about subjective experiences that 
while there may be validity and use to them as subjective experiences, we cannot bring that into the conversation as this is what it is. You know, we can't, we got to be aware of like what we can and can't um, make a claim about for the consensus reality of all people. We have subjective experiences and then we have like the actual consensus reality where knowledge can come to us through our senses in a shared way that we can all verify. And then we may push the boundaries of that as we go forward and as humanity moves forward. And that's fine. But like, I'm definitely all about uh, cutting, cutting it off where we, where we need to in terms of what we're making a claim about. So yeah, there is energy harvesting. There is negative forces at work. There are archons, but like my claim is that the archons are human. <laughs> now, like maybe there are, maybe spiritual forces are at play that are, um, more what you would call demonic or negative acting through those humans. But now we're in a realm where I can't make a claim that I have proof or evidence for. Now we're in the speculative realm and that's fine if someone has that be that belief or worldview, but I just want to help people with the belief that this, the highest truth is that everything is demonic and evil and false. I don't think that's the highest truth. Got it. I agree. I agree. And just back on the plant medicine topic, quickly, like intention matters, right? Anything can anything can be abused. Um, but what's the intentionality mm -hmm. versus if it's being used habitually? Because obviously, you know, I've, I've had incredible um, experiences. I've never gone anything hardcore. You know, obviously I've smoked some weed in my day and I have a pretty good relationship with it. That's something that I don't abuse. It's something when my body kind of knows, I'll, I'm, you know, I'm ready for it. I'll get some insight with. Um, and that's, that's, that is what it is. So I think there is definitely benefits to this, but again, what's the intention? And that's with all things, anything that you do, that's what matters, right? What's your relationship yeah. with it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, personally, I've done DMT. I've talked to the giant holographic head in the sp in the sky. <laughs> I've I've had those experiences. There's something definitely to it. Yeah. Um. I had a question before you asked. Must hijack this whole conversation. Well, let me take us, you, if you get it, just, you know, interrupt me, but I want to take us back to this idea of the archons, because this okay. is an important aspect of the whole belief of new age Gnosticism is that the archons are these seven like demonic, uh, minor gods that are under the Demiurge who's the main God. And so they'll, you know, people will correlate that to like the, uh, the traditional seven planets are, are these mm -hmm. archons and that your seven chakras are actually like. Uh, locks put onto your energetics to oh, harvest man. your energy and keep you trapped here. And so you got to unlock your chakras and the chakras are the archons and all this stuff is like really commonplace in the conspiracy sphere. Yep. <laughs> so let's just break down the word archon. Arche or arche in Greek means the beginning, origin or head. And, then our, and that's where you get the word archon for ruler or magistrate. So, Arhi, Arhi is the beginning. <laughs> and also, remember that word that we used before? Uh, the Argo Navis. We were talking about Noah's Ark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, there's that. The, uh, the Ark is a boat. And in the mystery traditions, that signifies the Yoni. And in fact, the, uh, the mystery of the Lingam and Yoni, the pole in the hole, <laughs> the sec this is what the ancient mysteries were always centering around because it's the the generative principle is the the mysterious uh, life force energy that creates and perpetuates life, right? Mm 
So um, the uh, Septuagint and Philo, the Greek philosopher, and many others have actually used the word arche, which is uh, alpha, rho, chi, eta, uh, eta, right? That's arche. It means wisdom to the Septuagint and to Philo. Hmm. Septuagint is a, the, the ancient Hebrew philosopher group, and that's a side, side tangent. But now we're talking about with this word, archon, we're referring to wisdom again. <laughs> so that is interesting. And uh, because we have this, everything's coming from who? Uh, Sophia, which means wisdom. And you have uh, Pallas, Athena, which Pallas means wisdom, by the way. Uh, you have, um, let's see, there's like a bunch of names of the, uh, the goddesses of wisdom. So I'm just going to hold that thought and go into the, uh, the archons from the, from the origin of the world text from the Nag Hammadi. So they name them seven appeared in chaos, androgynous. They have their masculine names and their feminine names. Uh, the feminine name is Pronoia, which means forethought, and Sam Bathus, which is weak, as in the weak. So there are seven archons, seven days of the week. Hmm. And Sam, <laughs> Sam means, is a, is a name for the sun, Sam and Shem. That's where you get Samson in the Old Testament. So where Samsung, is that where Samsung comes from, the company? Yeah, and I'll just... <laughs> Probably, dude. Tesla as well. Tony Breakthrough. A lot of these companies are like <laughs> totally solar um, cult derived for sure. So just like to name a couple of them as they're given in this text without reading all this is like you have uh, Saboath, which you have uh, Adonaios, Adon so Adonai. Um, there's your Adam character. You have Elios. Well, that's Helios without the H yes. in front of it. Sun. <laughs> yeah. You have Oreos. Or is also a name for the sun. We know Oreo, Oreo, Oreo cookies. <laughs> Oreos. <laughs> yeah. You have Astafeos. Uh, Asta, Aster. Talking about stars here. And then uh, that's actually the masculine name for Sophia is Astafeos, according to this. Um, so none of this, I'm not making any claims about the, this being like true or accurate doctrine. This is just... The this is the text that people's new age Gnosticism is derived from that they themselves never read, <laughs> you know. So, um, I think what you like, even just this conversation, because you know, I think we're getting heavy into some research stuff and etymology and language and symbolism and in a different way than we have maybe on, on, on other shows. And it just is such proof when people we live in a modern world now where people listen, like they get a headline. And they're just out there spouting off the headline as the truth because it showed up on their Instagram feed or their Facebook feed. And it's like, look at this level of research, you know, to really get to the bottom of things, to explore. And it's like, you know, it's a process, man. Like, you can't just sit here and be like, oh, yeah, whatever. I just have my job nine to five and then I go home and I, I watch the news for six for an hour, 30 minutes and be like, everybody, this is what's going on in the world. And this is what history is all about. It's just ridiculous to me. So I just appreciate this level of this level of research that... Yeah, but I mean, to bring it full circle again, to me, that's a symptom of Gnosticism. The refusal yeah. to go deep, right? The, the thing that oh, everything's hopeless. Everything's I already worthless know. Anyway. I'm Gnostic. Yeah. I already exactly. know. Exactly. Trust exactly. the science. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And plus just looking for someone else that knows, looking for some other source that has the information, someone else that I can just fully put all my trust in to believe that they have all the answers, they have all the truth. And as long as I'm following them on Instagram, then I'm going to be okay because I know the truth as well. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, man. And honestly, like, I appreciate the compliment on the depth of research. It's not special, though. Like, I'm not a special boy. I went and read some of the source material. You know, like I went and read the on the origin of the world from the Nagamati text and and had some keys to decipher it from previous research into language and etymology. But like, you know, it, it, I started the journey in terms of where I'm at and what I'm the way the perspective that I'm looking at things in like 2020. So it's not like it's some huge life uh, consuming struggle to to actually get these keys like. That's why I really like the spirit world books that I brought up, why I always promote yeah. Dylan's work because he um, he has done this work for a lot longer and he refines it down into the keys that are the quickest things to internalize so that when you look at any of the mythology or any of the scriptures for yourself, now you, ha- now you can see the pattern because it's all yeah. about the patterns. And once yeah. you see the patterns, then things reveal themselves to you. Yeah, I think that's also why we're uh, obviously all three of us have been influenced and have great respect for Michael Tazarian. You know, you're looking at decades of research and doing a lot of the books and reading obscure books that he probably, you know, found who knows where and did a lot of work. And, you know, you get to you get to read some of his stuff or study some of his or listen to a podcast and go, oh, wow, okay, I can I can really get an understanding um, from someone who has done deeper, deeper work because, you know, is, do I want to do that level of depth of work in that specific area? Maybe that's not for me. You know, there's other things that I, that I put more of my focus on. But again, this is why it's amazing to have some scholars that, you know, go deep, deep, deep into these areas. Yeah. And the, the, the truth is, chance you say it's not special, but compared to the standard that we're up against, it is special, man. Like, that's, that's, that's just the reality. Most people are getting bite-sized everything, you know? So... They don't. Yeah. Give, most Long people do not give a shit about the etym- through, like three-hour podcasts that I do a lot. <laughs> yeah, and the, most people don't care about the etymology of a word. You know, like they don't. And I'm sitting here saying I'm fascinated by this, but I haven't done in this area like what you're talking about. This subject is not like my wheelhouse, and yet I'm fascinated by it. So a respect, man. And that's why we also wanted to have you on because we wanted to expose our audience to this. I mean, we talk about Gnosticism and we talk about like new age world and how these are ideologies that people need to be really mindful of because are they guiding you towards living a, a living in truth and grounded and being the best you can be? Or are they things to, you know, to be concerned about? And so to to get to this understanding and to to look into some of the language and the and the symbolism is really cool. Yeah. And actually the ancient doctrines themselves aren't even the problem. It is the modern interpretation headline soundbite version that people are taking and running with. And I think it's promoted on purpose because it's helpful for, yeah. you know, the, the, it's very helpful for the master slave dynamic it, for the yeah. masters. If the slaves believe that they're slaved out to an evil God, then of course they're going to accept the slavery from the uh, human archons. Right. Of course yeah. the, the philosophy you put in, is what you're going to get out. And if your philosophy is that everything is fucked, everything is evil, everything is distorted, everything's hopeless, everything's helpless, then of course you're going to remain in mediocrity for your entire life. That's what you're inputting, right? So unless you can really come to grips with what I'm consuming, 
um, you know, obviously not just from a physical perspective, from all information and get to the real truth and find truth that actually lifts you up, makes you feel reverent about who you actually are, about the fact that you exist as a human being within this, you know, incredibly mysterious and amazing cosmos, then, uh, you know, well, what kind of life are you setting yourself up for? And yeah. to me, this you're right. It's the perfect philosophy to create a slave race. Yeah. And imagine, imagine really like your foundational belief is my body's a prison, you know, that it is something that I need to transcend. Are you going to take yeah. care of that body? Well, you know, yeah. No, are you no. going to? And like, I, you know, I've met people who are who, hyper, hyper, like spiritual. And I put that in quotes. And like many of them, like they don't look very healthy, you know? And so it's just, again, this idea of, and I, Joel, Joel, I know you, you've talked about this, but like, ascension versus the mm. opposite like i feel like uh, evolving is more of a grounding of coming back home into the body not leaving it and these this is what some of these uh ideologies um support and you know i'm being someone who's a body worker being someone who uh is in the somatic world and i mentioned it earlier like doing this kind of work really coming back home into myself into my body understanding the subtleties of sensation how that connects to my my emotional life, my behavior. That shit was game changing, man. That's like that's like Jedi training, you know. I really believe that. Instead yeah. of like not even knowing your body, not even understanding your biology, biology. This is why I'm such an advocate of of German New Medicine. Is like to really understand nature, the truth of your biology, really, you know, on on why these adaptations happen and what happens to body healing is so so important. And it's so empowering, and it really brings you to a place of self-responsibility like no other. Yeah. Instead of yeah. being at the mercy of the scientists, uh, I put that in quote, you know, in scientism and and these doctors that have been uh, indoctrinated in, in ways that don't support health at the highest levels. The highest wisdom is the body. Yeah. The yeah, like uh, it, the body is as an image of the cosmos as a fractal of the whole. It actually contains the entirety of all information of the whole. <laughs> so the only thing keeping us from these deep levels of intuitive knowing of actual gnosis, that's what actual gnosis is when you, it just wells up within you and you know it, is that we our humans are lacking the language to communicate with their body. So I'll give a little example. Um, so I do biofield tuning. I have this biofield anatomy, which is a map of the energy field of the body and where different types of energies, when they're stuck, what kind of emotional situations can arise from it. And this is a language that lets me communicate with my body and communicate with other people's bodies in a very amazingly deep way with intuition can come through that is just mind blowing to the point where like I can wave tuning forks around in my living room and somebody in Australia who's on a Zoom call with me, I can tell them, you've had painful issues with your ankles your whole life, haven't you? And they'll say, I've broke my left ankle three times and my right ankle two times in my life. And I, they never told me that up front. Or like my mom, my mom yesterday, <laughs> she was like complaining a bit uh, and expressing a lot of frustration over my, my uh, great uncle, her uncle, who is like way senile. I mean, he's sweet and he's funny, but he's like frustratingly out of his mind, you know, and she's the one main person who helps him. She's expressing this story about him doing some crazy stuff. And uh, she's like very energetically frustrated. I can feel it. And I'm like, how's your lower back? And she's like, it's killing me today. 
I'm like, yeah, the energy of frustration is is like I can feel the energy of frustration and I know where it lives in your biofield and I know how it correlates to your body. And I could just pick up that it's hurting your back or another, you know, another person who's versed in a different language of the body can just look at how your posture is being held and, you know, the balance of how far forward your, your head is on your spine and like different things like that. And they can tell you things about yourself or mm-hmm. someone can read the irises of your eyeballs and tell you how your organs are functioning. There's a, a bazillion different languages that we can learn to access the knowing and wisdom contained within the body that is the fractal microcosm of the all. And so it's like really well crucial said. to learn at least one of these languages because it can totally transform your life. When I, when I get hurt or I get an illness now, I can point to the uh, external situation or the, the difficulty I'm having with another person or, or whatever and go, oh, I am hurt because I'm not fully dealing with this situation. And when I, can, when I make that connection, it actually allows me to more deeply feel and re- express and thus release the emotion. You know, I might be kind of pissed off, but when I realize that, oh, it's actually causing me to get hurt, I might actually even feel the sadness come out. I even mm-hmm. get a little choked up. I might actually have the real emotional release that was necessary the whole time. And being able to connect the dots of the external world situation to the energetics in the body is what unlocks that for me. Otherwise, I might have just gone on and left the tension in there and not dealt with it for another 10 years. Yeah. But you know what the thing is, man? Do you think someone who's lived, you know, 30 years of hedonism, casted all these shadows for themselves, do you think they're going to be interested in getting to know the body, in looking at the body, in really understanding themselves on a deep level? Or is the little shiny light that says, nah, man, everything's fucked. You can escape. Here's the key. Don't worry about it. It's not your fault. How Don't attractive. go into the light. The light is a trap. <laughs> but how, how, how attractive would that seem to, to the individual who's developed so much shame from a life of inauthenticity that something can just say, drop it all. Forget the past. Forget the future. Um, you know, forget drop, everything. Drop the you, ego. Drop the ego, right? It's like, okay, perfect. Now I'm just going to morph into, you know, the shave my head, wear the yellow robe and just more from, you know, the corporate type to the monk, whatever it might be. We see it so often. So it, it takes work to actually get to the point of reverence for self, of reverence um, for the body. Because at the end of the day, you have to face the lies within yourself. You have to face the illusion within yourself. But if you have a doctrine that says, nah, everything's an illusion, there's no point discovering it, then of course, that's why people take this on. That's why they wear the cloak. Yeah, buddy. And, uh, you know, it's also about the choice. Somebody that had 30 years of hedonism and then today they decide I'm going to actually like step into the light here, the progress and the rapidity of transformation that they can make. I think there's even a quickening to that as Mm -hmm. more of us across a fractal are like, you know, doing this work ourselves. Someone else can step into the, um, the neurological pathways that we've been mining and digging out in the collective consciousness and uh, catch up to where we're at a lot faster than us who were digging the tunnel up to that point. <laughs> I, I you know, you. It's kind of like the hundred monkey effect. Uh, I remember seeing girls hula hooping at festivals 10 years ago and they, they were all, they were pretty good at it. And then like later years later, a new, a girl would pick up a hula hoop for the first time and within a month. She'd be like as good as the, the best who'd been doing it for years. You know, there's something about that. So like, 
in a way us doing the work, especially those of us who've like embodied our wholeness and our, and, and have done so much to uh, continue the purification process for our body at a point, you know, once you've like really integrated your, your own personal stuff and you're using what you've got, you're kind you're like actually doing work on the fractal. That's why the healing process never ends. Even once you find wholeness, you can keep purifying, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. keep balancing. And it's like, for the it's like universal at a certain point it's pretty amazing yeah yeah and you know about uh, another thing i want to throw out there that just popped in my head that's kind of fascinating is the the new age gnosticism doctrine part of it that uh, gets spread around is how after you die the uh the white light you go into the tunnel of light and you see dead grandma or jesus or buddha yeah. and those are actually aliens who are impersonating grandma to get you to go into the light and the light is actually a trap to force you. They made me reincarnate. They made me live again. They made me like have recycling. a life. Yeah. How dare they? And now my soul has been recycled back into the loose prison is what they believe. So they're literally like part of the dogma is like, uh, and it's one of those unprovable things, of course. So they, they get a pass on it is like, Oh yeah. Um, the fact that there's white light when people have near death experiences in a tunnel, it's proof of what everything we're saying and that it's all a trap and a trick. And so don't go into the light, avoid the light, hide from the light. Yeah. Well, what, what else, where else can you hide from the light in the womb? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's like a super hyper feminized in a negative sense. Um, you know, imbalanced feminization overall, like a lot of these guys, if they, that are preaching this stuff, if they would maybe just go to the gym, uh, get to the point where they're actually attractive to females, they might have a completely different perspective about the world they're in. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's body, it's body hating. So anyway, like this not going into the light is fascinating because in the biofield, there's the, uh, the root chakra energy off to the left side, like around the left hip and, uh, and past it. It carries the signature when there's stuck energy there of um, both, both laziness or indolence and also want not wanting to be seen, wanting to hide from the world. So they can they kind of go hand in hand. Like someone might not be lazy on purpose, but they're afraid of the light. They're afraid of being seen. They're yeah. afraid of seeing themselves. And so it causes this inactivity, this laziness. And I just find that fascinating that in the same way uh, as not wanting to be seen, there's this high, don't go into the light part of this whole uh, dogma of the person that doesn't want to actually like embody and, and save, save themselves. But you know, like we're, we're getting kind of deep into the time here and I want to, I really want to flesh out this idea of uh, emanations and the Trinity to finally like help us conceive of where this demiurge concept comes from so that we can see it the way that I think the ancients meant it rather than as an evil devil. God. Cool, man. We've got about 10 minutes if you can keep it as succinct as possible. Yeah, yeah, I think I can do this. So basically, the, uh, the idea of emanations in the Trinity is an ancient, ancient, ancient Oriental doctrine that is uh, replete throughout all the different spiritual systems of the world. And it's basically the create three forms, one God, thrice great, uh, Hermes Trismegistus, all these different versions yep. of it. So um, the creator, <laughs> oh, by the way, Hermes, if you switch the R to the L, Hell, hell, talking Helios. (laughs) Anyway, 
the uh, the three forms of one God, the emanations, is basically the idea that there's the uh, the eternal, self-existing being, beingness itself uh, of nature, and that it emanates three or eternity, three persons in one. So that's the creator, the destroyer, and the uh, savior. And the sun is a good is an emblem of this as it goes through spring, summer, and winter. It follows this trinity pattern in um. In Hinduism, you have Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu. By the way, Vishnu, V and F interchange between Latin and uh, Sanskrit. So, Vishnu, like your Jesus fish. <laughs> or Dagon, Dag. Dag backwards is Gad. And Hebrew goes right to left, or, uh, you know, right to left instead of left to right. So, that you can also reverse things and get a lot of information out of that. You have Adam and his emanations, or I'm sorry, three sons, Abel. Cain and Seth. You have Noah, who is chaos, as I mentioned, the, the origin, the pleroma, and that he, his three sons are Shem, Ham, and Japhet. Uh, Jehovah has the Father, Holy Ghost, the Son. It goes on and on. There's like tons of versions of this. Even in the creation story from the Nag Hammadi, Pistis, or Sophia, has three emanations of her own. Sophia, little Sophia, it's part of why it's so confusing. It's not the same as Pistis, Eve, and Zoe. And Pisces even sounds like Pisces or uh, like a Vesica Pisces, <laughs> or the, which is also the same, practically the same word as where we get the uh, uh, Pish, Pish, uh, the whatchamacallit, the uh, Vishnu, Vishnu, Jesus fish. <laughs> I will Pisces, Pisces, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so the Vesica Pisces is an important concept too, because uh, this is, I think, where the idea of the Trinity is kind of originating. So you have the pattern, which is a circle, and that's the father, the pater. And that circle is the all, it encompasses all. Mm -hmm. And then it mirrors itself and divides, or it doesn't really divide, it multiplies. And so now you have two circles. But when the two circles overlap, one moves away to the right, Jesus at the right hand of God, the uh, overlapping creates a third shape. So the monad, when it, whenever it generates the duad, the duad in and of itself creates the triad or trinity because the two circles create a third shape which is basically there's your idea of the uh mother father and the son or the child which is the middle shape the mediator the, the, which is the the psychopomp the the one that's in between the worlds if you will that's your savior so what is important to understand in terms of where this idea of the uh the the devil and the God being the same being, I think comes into play is that, as I said, when the monad generates the duad, this is all my opinion, by the way, um, the, the second being is if the first being is the creator, the second being is the destroyer. That's the polarity of it. But the destroyer in the ancient versions of the Trinity, this is not my opinion. The destroyer is the regenerator because to like when the sun destroys all the vegetation in winter, it's necessary so that things can regenerate in the spring. So in the confusion of the ancient doctrines and the, the uh, idolatry of, of concepts that were meant to be more philosophical, yeah. you can, they, people have confused this idea of the destroyer and made it its own entity. Interestingly, that it came about about the same time that the calendar switched from being a three-season calendar to a four. 
Uh, I find that interesting that the Trinity split off the destroyer from the regenerator and it became its own being. And well, it even, even brings to mind for me fungus, right? Which is always present in nature at the scene of death and decay, but is also the regenerative force. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, let's, I'll try to move this a little quickly, but it's important to understand that uh, the three persons of the Trinity are one person. That's key. So the the creator destroyer, mm-hmm. regenerator, preserver, savior. Uh, so let's go to the a- most ancient version of this, the Tetragrammaton, or as Pythagoras called it, the Tetractus, yad He vav He in Hebrew, transliterated by most people as J-H-V-H or Y-H-V-H. Yep. But Hebrew letters, especially the ones that make vowel sounds, can actually transliterate to different letters, mul- multiple possibilities. So J-H-V-H, Jehovah, Yad Vavhe could also transliterate to I E V E, Yiv, also can transliterate to Yov. <laughs> so anyway, Yad Vavhe is Jehovah and Eve. It's the same word. In fact, Bacchus, one of the versions of the the Creator deity, uh, the mediator, if you will, the Son of God, was also worshipped in some areas as a snake called Eve. <laughs> so I'm going to read you straight out of the, uh, this is the divine androgyne, by the way, the hermaphrodite. Okay, so the, the mediator is male and female because it's between mother and the father. Mm-hmm. So this is straight from the Nag Hammadi origin of the world. Now, Eve is the first virgin, the one who without a husband bore her first offspring. It is she who served as her own midwife. For this reason, she is said, held to have said, it is I who am the part of my mother, and it is I who am the mother. It is I who am the wife. It is I who am the virgin. It is I who am pregnant. It is also I who am the midwife. It is I who am the one that comforts pains of travail. It is my husband who bore me, and it is I who am his mother. And it is he who is my father and my Lord. And it is he who is my force. What he desires, he says, says with reason. I am in the process of becoming, yet I have born a man as Lord. So why I read this is just to, to help people understand and portray that, uh, that this idea of the destroyer that was created by Sophia, who is later in the text actually just Eve. <laughs> so it's very confusing. If you don't understand that it's, we're talking about three persons of one trinity and they just have different multiple names, the, uh, the creator, the demiurge, the craftsman is the mother. Because when the monad splits into the duad, the second circle contains the shape that is the mediator, the, the vesica pieces, the, the yoni, the portal. Just like a mother, uh, when she's pregnant, her son is inside of her, a part of her. So the, the duad is both the mother, Mary, mother of God, right? They worship Mary as God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mary is na- the name of Jesus' mother. Uh, Maya is the name of Buddha's mother. Maya is the name of Mercury's mother. Maya, Maya is the name of the illusion, according to the, the Brahmins, yeah. uh, that is the physical world. So the last thing that I want to say in closing, because I know we're, we're com- coming up to the end here, is that it's my personal opinion that the, the one, the first circle, the, the pleroma, the monad, is actually the entire night sky or day sky, the whole sky itself. That's the, that's the 
the the father, the sky father, Uranos, uh, Anu, which is a word that means year, but in the Sumerian is the name of the, the all father. And then the sun is the emblem of the mediator, like the S-U-N sun is the emblem or symbol or chariot that the mediator, uh, the creator, the demiurge rides in as it travels throughout the whole night sky. And uh, anyway, we'll stop there, but I could go on about this stuff forever. The important thing to understand is just that the, uh, the idea of the destroyer is, in my opinion, or the devil is a separation and an idolatry of the uh, idea of the Trinity separating the destroyer from the regenerator and not understanding that they're all uh, aspects of being that nature operates in this cycle that we call the Trinity. And then it does it in every, you know, this Trinity is part of every structure of life and physicality Mm -hmm. in the manifest realm. Cool, man. Dude, first of all, thank you for sharing all this. One thing I do want to highlight, though, is that I I love you spoke about the Trinity and pretty much every one of our podcasts is a Trinity. You know, when you think about Joel, myself and you right now, and there's this single Trinity that goes on. So I I like that. Maybe that's why our podcast is popular. (laughs) Three is a magic number. It's the first thing that gives form and stability. Yeah, man. The Tao Te Ching, right? Um, from the one comes the two, from the two comes the three, from the three, all things are possible or something like that. I'm sure I mucked that up, but again. Oh, yeah, well, uh, the Tao Te Ching, what you're quoting is actually verbatim also quotes uh, a statement attributed to Hermes in one of the texts of Heliopolis in Egypt. I'm the one that becomes two. I'm the two that becomes four. I'm the four that becomes eight. After that, I'm one again. So um, I think amongst many other things, it's also referring to the analemma of the mm. sun, the figure eight shape that the sun makes in the sky, which I believe is a large, deg- a large degree of why the uh, Hermes was called Lord Eight <laughs> and all this eight symbolism refer- referring to him. And then when you look at the, the glyph for eight, it's the two circles. It's the monad becoming a duad. Mm, yeah. This is so fascinating, man. Really, just like, I love love hearing everything you have to say. You know, it's definitely a lot to chew on. And I think for our audience, you know, Chance referred a few books. I definitely uh, want to message you to see if there's any other books that you recommend on these subjects too that we can maybe put down in the show notes too. I think I'll throw one more out there. Yeah. Uh, this is called The Celestial Code of Scripture by John McHugh. It's the astral cipher underlying the miracle stories of the Bible and Quran. Mm-hmm, and wow. he's coming at it from the cuneiform, Sumerian and Akkadian side, but uh, going through and using great illustrations as well to show you that like every story from the Bible and from the Quran, every miracle story is actually uh, put up there in the stars and that they came up with the story and called it history from looking at the stars. Incredible. It, it's tight. It's super tight. <laughs> it's a great so book. pretty much... For all you out there, quit looking down at your phones, start looking up at the sky and gain some wisdom. Get a planisphere. Chance, Chance, brother, what do you have for our audience? How can they find you? What are you offering these days? What's going on? Yeah, dude. uh, Interversepodcast.com is where you'll find everything I do. Got two shows a week, if not more, that I do. And uh, I'm branching out into doing more original research. So... Some solo shows are probably going to happen in the future. I just did one a little while ago. I cover the gamut. Uh, my favorite stuff is, of course, the symbolism and mythology and the language because it's endlessly fascinating. And 
you'll never run out of connections to make and it's <laughs> blow your own mind all the time. Like, oh, I can't believe I didn't ever look at that word that way before. <laughs> and it's always like right under our nose all the time yeah. in our language. But I also do uh, tuning. I, I use tuning forks to balance and bring coherence to energy fields for people. Amazing results. And people can find out more about that on my website or just to go to my channel. And one of the newest episodes with Eileen McCusick is a good one where we talk about tuning, who I, l- I learned it from. And uh, I do Oracle sessions with uh, I Ching and Tarot as well. If that's something people are interested in, they can always just email me, chance at interversepodcast.com if they want more information on anything I brought up. And I can send you a link directly to whatever you're curious about or just explore the content on my YouTube page or the podcast player app for whichever one you like and look up Interverse. Awesome, man. Chance, thank you so much for your time, for your research. And honestly, just for your passion, man, and for the light that you continue to shine. I love seeing the path that you're on and I'm looking forward to seeing the evolution continue for sure. Guys, if you've listened to this entire podcast and you're still here with us, we think you're very special as well. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms because they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.